Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page ad-free. So now listen, gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking about the music and life of Sinead O'Connor. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We talked to documentarian Katherine Ferguson about her film Nothing Compares, as well as share some of our favorite underrated songs by Sinead. But first, some new music from Lil Yachty. It's a little bit of Lil Yachty from his new album, Let's Start Here. The name of the track is Drive Me Crazy. Uh, Miles McCollum, born in Georgia 25 years ago. Rapper, singer, songwriter, and record producer. Uh, he was uh, one of the uh, key artists in that SoundCloud hip-hop world, Jim, uh, mm-hmm. circa 2015. Um, you know, you read the coverage of SoundCloud, and, and, and it, you know, it was very hard on sleeve, very raw, very stripped down. At a time in, in rap where, where things were getting kind of moody. You know, Drake, yeah. was, Drake was around, and then you had... Uh, the drill music out of Chicago is very dark. Yachty was being uh, written about as bubblegum rap. Bubblegum trap. Buoyant yeah. <laughs> and uh, king of the teens, as he liked to bill himself at the time. He was a kid, you know, teenager. Uh, he's sampling uh, Game Boy tracks and the Rugrats theme. Right. Uh, a couple of singles, One Night in Minnesota, really put him on the map. Mixtape Little Boat in March 2016. Immediately signed uh, to Motown Capital Records, Quality Control Music, a joint venture among these big labels. And uh, he he became the mainstream star of the SoundCloud generation Mm -hmm. of hip-hop artists. Uh, So his first four albums for for the majors all went top 20. Last year he had a huge viral hit with Poland, and now he has his fifth studio album, Let's Start Here, a shift, as you will hear, uh, when we play this song. Uh, we're going to play a track from it, then review it. Uh, we're going to play a little bit of Black Seminole from the new Lil Yachty record. Let's start here on Sound Opinions. What's wrong? What's wrong, Mr. Man? Your eyes alone And you're walking with both hands on your head His response is on a clean, clean heart That is Black Seminole from Let's Start Here, the opening track on the fifth album by Little Yachty. Um, you know, Greg, uh, Yachty tells us, don't ask no questions on the ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. He also tells us he wanted to make 
like a psychedelic alternative project. Different. All live instrumentation. Um, I love this album. It is by no means a perfect album. Let's start here. But the sense of experimentation brings me back to uh, that, that great period of alternative rap and psychedelia coming into it with De La Soul and Paul's Boutique by the Beasties, uh, Tribe Cold Quest to a certain extent. I don't think there's anybody as inventive uh, musically. Uh, you know, in hip-hop today, this side of Tyler, the creator, um, what he's doing with the musical backgrounds here, there is so much Pink Floyd. Mm. <laughs> and not in a derivative way. It's organic hip-hop, to be sure. Um, but uh, psychedelic guitar and psychedelic effects, a little too much vocoder, maybe, yachty. I'd pair back on that, okay? Um there are tracks that do not succeed as well, but then there are other moments of, I haven't heard this before. And this far into hip-hop's evolution, to be going back to that sense of uh, sonic playfulness and experimentation and a palette that isn't usually associated with the music, but which he's using very effectively... Um, I was really inspired by this record. What does he have to say? I think the message is secondary almost to uh, the delivery. Uh, it's about stretching out. It's about going for the ride, as he said. Don't ask me uh, any questions. Uh, just come along. And and I love that. I, I don't know. Were you impressed? I was. I, I, I wasn't expecting it. I, I did it. You know, there's a certain, you know, the first four studio albums were basically Yachty and sort of a, Playing into that bubblegum uh, trap uh, reputation that he earned as a SoundCloud rapper uh, eight years ago, uh, this this record's a left turn for him, and I would say, from my perspective, totally unexpected. He's basically made a Tame Impala record. That's the way I'm looking and, at it. And he was involved in a Tame Impala remix. Uh, yeah. Many of our peers in scratching their heads, where did this come from, and, or pointing that out. And you mentioned the vocal effects. I can't think of a track where he doesn't use it on this record. Yeah. It's all over the record. It is his primarily vocal instrument. He's shifting between rapping and singing. Mm -hmm. He's not necessarily a good rapper per se. You know, he is the flow yeah. isn't like at the top tier. Yeah, he's not a great he's singer. Not a great singer. <laughs> but at the same time there is there is a musicality here, a sense of melody. He gives some a lot of space to to these great vocalists that he has on the on the album. Uh, mm -hmm. Diana Gordon and Justine Skye. Uh, coming in with some key vocal parts. He's writing with some different people, and, and, and that sort of opened him up in terms of uh, the, the kind of music that he's playing. The last half of the album, I love the way that's sequenced, mm. uh, all the tracks flowing together. It's basically about tracing the evolution of, of both the narrator as he tries to mature and evolve, and also the relationship he's in. And that track, Should I Be, uh, a great pop song, by the way. It's about yearning. I think that the lines, Am I mad at what you did? I don't think so, but should I be, but should I be, but should I be? You know, and yeah. it's kind of like this uh, inquisition of, of the self here. Like well, what, well uh, you know, and Black you know, Seminole, he sings, Greg, a black man with mouths to feed, embracing quality through greed. Yeah. No time to joke around, the kid is now a man. He's saying, I was doing this thing. I yeah. had this formula. It was working. It was bubblegum trap. 
and now here's where I am. Yeah, and it's a it's a great thing. I, I agree with you. This is a surprising record from him in terms of where it's going sonically. I think it's uh, one of the best albums we're going to hear this year. Yeah, I was really impressed. And that's what we thought about the new album from Little Yachty. But as always, we want to hear from you. Leave us a voice message on soundopinions.org and give us your thoughts. Well, that voice, that song, nothing compares to you, Sinead O'Connor, putting her mark forever, I would say, Greg, stealing uh, the famous Prince song. I can think of few uh, songs in popular music in the last half century that have made an impact like that one. We realized on the occasion of this new-ish documentary, Nothing Compares, that Sinead is long overdue in getting a deep dive on this show. Born Sinead Marie Bernadette O'Connor, and now asking us to refer to her as Shohada Sadaket, since her conversion to Islam. Let's fill in a little bit of background about Sinead O'Connor. You know, really tough life uh, growing up in uh, Glenageary, County Dublin. Her dad was a structural engineer, later became a barrister. Her mom split from the dad and died uh, tragically in a car crash when Sinead was a a very young woman. She winds up uh, for 18 months in a Magdalene asylum run by the Order of Our Lady of Charity. That figures in the documentary that we're going to talk about. You know, there were some positive things there and some very difficult circumstances that Sinead had to uh, deal with. Um, You know, falls into music almost accidentally. One of the volunteers at the institution was the sister of Paul Byrne, drummer for uh, a then-popular Irish band, Intua Nua. Mm-hmm. And he heard Sinead singing Evergreen by Barbara Streisand, was knocked on his butt by the voice right. coming from this woman. My God, it is one of the most powerful in the history of popular music. No two ways about it. Uh, Sinead begins to dip a toe into the music world. For a while, she's the singer in a band, Tantan Makut, brings her to the attention of the music industry, and then, you know, strikes out on her own. That debut album in 1987, The Lion and the Cobra, really begins the buzz. Uh, The single, Mandinka, was a huge college radio hit. And then, holy cow, into the stratosphere with I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, 1990. Uh, Grammy Awards, the incredible video for Nothing Compares to You, you know, performances all over television, an MTV star, Sinead becomes a pop superstar, no two ways about it, Mm -hmm. Uh, at a time when in the alternative artistic realm, uh, it is rare to see a woman with so much control and such vision. Uh, Seems weird to say, but the early 90s are a different century in a a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, she uh, was cutting against the grain from the start. I mean, she gets signed to a, a label deal. Uh, you know, immediately they're like, you know, what's with the hair? You know, mm-hmm. they're, 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 they're kind of, don't scowl on your record cover. They actually changed the record cover of her first album for the U.S. audience because yes. they didn't want to have that, you know, kind of banshee, you know, anger. And, and she rebelled against all of it. She was never comfortable in that role. 
but the songs were so good and the voice was so powerful that people couldn't uh, deny it. Uh, you know, the video for Nothing Compares to You, you know, I, I think that's si- the single greatest moment in the MTV era, you know. I mean, yeah. who pay, you know, I wasn't ever a, a big fan of videos, but that one was so compelling and so powerful and it was so simple. Just a close-up of her face singing that song. And the tear, not and faint, tear, and nobody, genuine. This woman was coming at you, heart and soul, 100% herself, and paying a price for it. Absolutely. Because uh, everything falls apart, <laughs> most dramatically. You and I have both interviewed her, and she, she's very open about, about stuff. She basically talks about a lot of her music as her response to, to surviving child abuse. Yeah. Like coming through this, this evil in her life and, and, and figuring out a way to deal with it. And, and holding people accountable. Holding people accountable. And Catholic Church was a was, you know, a huge presence in where she grew up in Ireland. Uh, with her mother, uh, it, it was a huge presence, obviously, and justified a, a, a lot of the way she felt about Sinead and about the way she felt about the way Sinead was leading her life. And, and Sinead said that, you know, she, she shocked the world when she went on Saturday Night Live and ripped up the picture of the Pope. A lot of people did not understand what she was doing. Simultaneously to that, she was singing uh, Bob Marley's song, War, which basically said, if you don't figure this stuff out, the institutions that govern us, that rule us, whether it's government or the church, there will be war. Right. Um, she was making a very sophisticated critique that becomes, oh, this woman was just trying to get attention. Right, right. But two weeks after the SNL appearance, she is one of the featured performers at the 30th anniversary concert for Bob Dylan uh, at, at Madison Square Garden. You know? And it's got to be said, you know, growing up, her musical touchstones were Dylan, Marley, and, and uh, to a lesser extent, Susie and the Banshees. You know, she's always talked about that in interviews. But right. Dylan and Marley were the gods. Yeah, and, and, and she was, you know, pleased to be invited uh, to come. And she was um, uh, scheduled to play uh, Dylan's song, I Believe in You. Perfect, perfect fit for her. Band was ready to go. Uh, but when she walks on the stage, and I'm actually attending the show. I was covering it for the Chicago Tribune. I had a great seat. I could see everything that was going on uh, very close up. And, uh, you know, she comes on the stage and the audience reaction is already hostile, agitated. Uh, there were people cheering, but there were a lot of people booing. Yeah. And she stood there at the stage waiting for the audience to sort of settle down. Well, they never did. It just continued to build and build. In fact, the longer she stood there, the more it got uh, uh, agitated in mm-hmm. the audience. And eventually she just steps to the microphone. band's ready to, like, like want to go in the song. She basically calls them off, says, uh, grabs the microphone. And very fiercely, this is what some people miss. They, they, they said she was just kind of waifish and, Mm-mm. you know, left, left the stage in tears. She comes up there and she basically shouts Marley's war into yes. the microphone and talks about child abuse, child abuse. She mentioned those words over and over again. She's trying to explain in some ways what happened two weeks before wasn't coming out of nowhere. I wasn't tearing up a picture of the Pope. What she said was, I was tearing up a picture of... Me as a pop star, I was using him as an example of what the world portrayed me as and what, how I didn't want to be portrayed. Now, that's a complex message. Yeah. You're not, you can't expect your audience to understand that. But here she was trying to amplify what she was really getting at, this idea of these institutions that have ruled our lives, especially in Ireland at the time, Catholic Church being so huge. 
you know, have have things to answer for. It's very disappointing. I always thought that Dylan did not come to her side. Good well, for Chris Christopherson for doing that. And, and I and I did some reporting. In fact, I I interviewed Bob, Neil Young the day after. He was the mm. performer that came on stage. So she's let off the stage. She 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 gives this performance that's right. like I'm I'm in your face. I'm right back at you. Then she sort of has a little breakdown off stage. Chris Christopherson, you know, cradles her and they walk off the stage together. And people were saying, you know, why didn't Dylan do something? Why didn't Neil Young say something? Mm. And Neil, Neil said, listen, I'm not there to review the audience reaction. You know, he's kind of like, mm. and, and Sinead later told me, I didn't expect him to say, he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't mm-hmm. know me. He probably didn't understand it either. Dylan apparently was backstage, didn't see any of it. He didn't find out about it until later mm. that something had happened with Sinead. He was unaware that something had happened. So she basically lets them off the hook. Whether yeah. they should be or not is, is you know, another question. But she herself does not blame anyone for, you know, not responding to the reaction. She said, it's my... It's my bed. I'm gonna. Li- I'm gonna. I'm gonna lie in it. No, you know? I just. I just mean in the sense that it's depressing to see that a uh, uh, an artist of of Dylan's stature or young, for that matter, who often said incredibly unpopular things, right? Suddenly, you know, uh, Dylan had uh, been booed. A new many artist, times. Uh, you know, <laughs> making that. St- and Neil Young was misunderstood. Even Richard Nixon has got soul, right? Right. right. Uh, he's singing. We're all human beings. Uh, that, that that an audience. Uh, coming to celebrate that would not understand Sinead O'Connor, but it effectively derails a super promising, super lucrative Mm -hmm. pop career. Sinead says, I was never pop. I didn't want to be pop. That happened by accident. She also, there's a great quote from her in 91. I don't do anything in order to cause trouble. It just so happens that what I do naturally causes trouble. I'm proud to be a troublemaker. To me, that is the definition of great rock and roll. It puts her there in the pantheon with Dylan and Marley. You know, she talks about her career sort of being jump-started again by that uh, EP that she put out in 97, the Gospel Oak EP, Mm -hmm. you know, which is very ballad-heavy. She says, that's the turning point in my career. That's where I started what I feel Mm. is my real career, beginning here. Uh, You know, she told me, she said, there was, she gave me a great quote around that time. My fans know when they come to one of my shows, they're going to mass, basically. Mm. You know, interesting, drawing drawing a parallel to her youth, you know, in the Catholic, as a Catholic. Uh, they're not going to see a pop show. I'm thankful they can hear the passion, whatever I do, and they relate to that. Um, I think that was her way of saying, here's who I really am. And from then on, she's making records that are very much in keeping with what she feels at that moment, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's a, Ro- a Rastafarian record or she's covering it, a, you know, a, a hundreds, hundreds years old ballad. She's doing exactly what she wants to do on her own terms. And that, to me, is the most fascinating part of her career. People dismiss uh, the last 20, 25 years of her career because they really don't know the music. It wasn't on the charts or wasn't, wasn't, weren't pop hits, but they were, I think, extremely artistic and well-made records. Well, 10 albums, 11 if you count Gospel Oak, uh, 12th coming soon, and we're going to make the case when we come back that there's not a bad one among them. And we'll also be talking to filmmaker... Catherine Ferguson, who made that incredible documentary on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're talking about the music, career, and activism of Sinead O'Connor. Next, we've got an interview Jim did with director Catherine Ferguson, 
whose documentary film Nothing Compares came out in 2022 on Showtime. The movie focuses on Sinead's life from the years 1987 to 1993, capturing her intense rise and fall from stardom and her refusal to be silenced. Jim, take it away. Well, I'm eager to jump into this conversation with Katherine Ferguson. What an incredibly powerful film, Nothing Compares. And Catherine, don't take this the wrong way. Infuriating. My blood pressure was shooting through the roof. Welcome to Sound Opinions. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, no, it's exciting. And yes, uh, I think your reaction is shared by many who watch the film. I think uh, rage is the key takeaway. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. You know, as, as critics, Greg Cott and I covered a Sinead from the beginning all the way through the present. I mean, she has never made a bad album. But your decision to focus on 87 to 93 and the shift in perception from genius performer to, you know, hell raiser, uh, you know, has oh, canceled. She was canceled. Catherine, before we get to the decision to focus on uh, Sinead vilifying by the media, let's start with how you became a fan. You're a young woman uh, in Belfast. Is that... True. Absolutely, yes. I was born um, in the early 80s in Belfast and uh, when The Lion and the Cobra came out in 1987, I was very fortunate to have a father, uh, Sean, who uh, discovered the album and Sinead and became a wild mega fan himself at that point and would have played The Lion and the Cobra on repeat as we drove around <laughs> rainy Northern Ireland, you know, during this fairly um, bleak time. You know, it was still a country still very much in turmoil um, during the Troubles. And she would be blasted in the car. The rain would be pelting on the windows. And it really did become this like soundtrack to my early childhood. Then it was um, in the early 90s when I was a wee bit older, in my early teens, that I really felt like myself and my friends really discovered her on our own two feet and became, you know, bona fide fans ourselves. And for us, you know, she was just so exciting, especially being these young Northern Irish girls, you know, having this uh, person just kind of land. I suppose in the early teens, we could actually really see her and hear what she was saying, you know, we then went on very quickly to witness this horrific backlash that she suffered, yeah. um, which began really in 1992. And I suppose for me, as this young woman, um, seeing this icon of mine being treated the way she was, was just hugely demoralizing. And it created um, quite a dent. And it was just, I, I really would say, honestly, that the seeds for the film were sown at that moment because it was such a shock to see this happen, that it was a story that I was never able to kind of shake off and forget about. And then when I became a filmmaker in my 20s, you know, it still was there. And um, yeah, mm. uh, we, yeah, we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I, I can't. Anyway, I'm, I'm feeling incredibly old, Catherine. You literally grew up with Sinead, yeah. whereas I vividly remember I was uh, the pop music critic at the Sun-Times. My editor said, you know, what the hell did this crazy woman, and it was always 
crazy woman, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. You know, what did she do on Saturday Night Live? And, you know, what I was struck with when I wrote my column is no one reported the context. No. This was a Marley song yeah. based on a speech by Haley Selassie. And, and the context of the Catholic Church with its blind eye toward uh, slavery and what was happening then... We know we will win. We have confidence in the victory of good over evil. Fight the real enemy. You know, as I look at it now, having been raised Roman Catholic, altar boy, the whole bit, right? You know, Sinead was 15 years ahead of her time mm -hmm. in talking about the sexual abuse scandals, and nobody wanted to believe it. <laughs> you know, this was not sensationalism tearing up the picture of the Pope. Uh, so you open with the backlash to that at the Dylan, the Dylan concert. I know. <laughs> you know, someone in the film tells you, uh, my God, what, you know, Madison Square Garden is sold out, and, and you know, the preeminent protest singer of the 60s mm -hmm. and 70s, a hero to Sinead. What did people expect? I know. It's it's actually quite stunning when you see that play out. And it was such important footage for us to include because you see Sinead, you know, she arrives on stage delighted that she's been invited to play at her musical thrilled, icon's thrilled. birthday yeah. party, essentially, and walks right. on and you can just see the pride on her face to then just be confronted with this baying mob of 20,000 people where half were booing and half were cheering. Yeah. And she said it was just this very disconcerting guttural noise that she was um, greeted with. And I think really, you know, to actually see all of this play out in the footage is actually quite extraordinary because you can just see the shock cross her face and the emotions that she's yeah. going through um, at that moment. And then this this split second where she gets angry uh -huh. and the way she pulls out her earphones and delivers the acapella Marley mm -hmm. song that she had performed on Saturday Night Live. I mean, she's just like, you will not silence me. No, it's very powerful. And a lot of people have actually commented that it's actually felt very empowering to them to actually see that moment because that is the key moment where everything just breaks and she just goes for what she believes in and what she's there to do. And I just think... For so many people who've maybe suffered under the hands of the church or for whatever reason, yeah. it's that moment. Or any any man that would silence uh, Yeah, them. I, I yeah. think so. And she's choosing not to be silenced. And it's an incredibly powerful moment seeing her do that and just her defiance and her bravery and shouting the words of war uh, back at this yeah. audience is extraordinary. And until the Subhuman bondage has been toppled, utterly destroyed, everywhere is war. It's very powerful. Mm -hmm. 
Sinead is is a private person. Uh, both Greg and I have interviewed her, and and in recent years as well. Um, but I wonder what it was like approaching her because we only hear her voice in the present as a voiceover. A very interesting choice as a filmmaker. You keep us in eighty-seven to ninety-three. We don't see the Talking Head interviews you know i mean john reynolds makes some some fascinating comments as well uh you have a lot of great interview material and of course from sinead but we don't see her in quote-unquote modern times until the performance at the end what was that you know how did so when you went to her what was what was it like i imagine there was initial uh skepticism well it's a bit of a long-winded story but my relationship with sinead and her team actually goes back about uh 10 11 years you know, when I started making films in my 20s, hers was a story that I always wanted to tell. And um, then I went back and I actually did a master's degree in 2011. And I made a short film called Mather, which is Irish for Mother. And it was a short experimental piece. But I, at that point, reached out to her then um, manager, Faulkner Kelly, um, and asked mm-hmm. if it'd be possible to get access to the stems of her music to deconstruct them for this short that I was making. And he kindly agreed. And I sent the short uh, over to them uh, once I'd finished with it in 2011, just to, you know, just to share with them. And didn't, I don't think I heard anything back at that point. But then um, two years later, uh, Faulkner and John Reynolds came back to me and asked if I would direct a music video for her track, Fourth and Vine, which um, was on ah. the album that came out in 2013. And um, it was really, at th- that's when I got to meet Sinead. Um, and that's when I got to meet the wider team around her. And really, and I suppose what that meeting did do was just reaffirm to me everything I'd felt throughout the decades leading up to that. So so when you got to sit down with Sinead, Sinead was Sinead. You were not disappointed. Oh, no. I was completely starstruck and awestruck and, you know, uh, terrified, but so thrilled to meet her. And it just really stoked the fires further for me wanting to try and work out how to tell this much larger story, this uh, this film, Nothing Compares, that we've made. And then it was in early 2018, I met the film's uh, co-writers and co-producers, Michael Malley and Elmer Emtage. And I finally met, uh, you know, a team that were equally as passionate and as excited about uh, this telling of the story. Because we never set out to do the biopic, and we can talk about that in a second. It was always this right. story that we wanted to look at. And I'd very much kept in touch with them and had a good relationship with them. But I still expected a very polite, thank you, but not a chance in hell response. I wasn't (laughs) expecting anything to come of it, but I thought I may as well chance my arm and and see if if this, you know, if this might uh, work. And I just think the timing was of critical importance because it was early 2018. You know, the world was on fire at that point, uh, particularly with women speaking out. You know, we just had had, obviously Trump was in power. We'd had um, Me Too, Time's Up. Uh, and, you know, that's only in North America. In Ireland, we had just had the um, equal marriage referendum a few years prior. Yeah. And we were leading up to our own abortion referendum, the repeal the eighth um, referendum in um, middle of 2018. So there was a lot going on and a lot of stuff that just felt, it just felt more and more bizarre that Sinead 
her, that in her voice and even a mention of her wasn't in any of this when surely she had right, inspired right. so many of these you know young uh, activists that were going out and making the changes so I think it was timing I think really it was because so much yeah. was happening globally it felt right several of the reviews I was reading after I saw the film and, and got my own you know, they're comparing it to recent docs of Lorena Bobbitt uh, Britney Spears and, and yes all of these women suffered at the hands of a sexist media but Sinead was talking about really important things and I can't, I can't see another uh, again going back to Dylan singing Masters of War in the middle of the Vietnam War Sinead is doing something similar mm-hmm. in the middle of people being sick and tired of uh, decades of, of male patriarchy, <laughs> right? Um, uh, centuries of male, mm-hmm. pa- the entire history <laughs> yes, of humankind exactly. of male, male yeah. you know, and she is speaking out and um, and for that, she uh, she's, she's just, her career is essentially ruined. Yeah, I think you mentioned it earlier about, uh, you know, being one of the first superstars to be canceled before that was even a, a bonafide term, you know, I think right, really right. Uh, she was. I think um, it was in an era before social media. So if you weren't being written about, if you weren't being talked about or having your music played uh, publicly, you may as well not exist because there was no way to be able to right. connect with an audience. And really, right. it felt from what we have seen with all of our research, like that, that that's what happened. There was just like a mass yeah. shutdown. And um, well, certainly on the commercial side of, of Sinead's career, I mean, what I think is so fabulous, and we can talk about that in a bit too, is just how she then goes on to, you know, create these incredible, critically acclaimed albums on her own terms and uh, creates right. this incredible music. But it isn't anything like the commercial success as the first two Well, you know, you know in, in addition to the music industry shutting her out and radio and MTV... Um, it, it seemed like she wasn't able to offer the context that was so needed. Very yes. few critics and reporters. I mean, me and Greg were diving deep. Yeah. What was Sinead saying? What was the Marley song about? What choice she had made? Sure. It broke my heart to hear her female publicist say, well, there's nothing I can do for you. There was something you could do. You know, several select interviews with the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, you know, Rolling Stone. Here is what I was saying. You know, no one would give her the platform. Maybe she didn't even want at that point. But but as an incredibly articulate and deep thinker, um, I wanted to hear her voice, and it wasn't out there in response. It's interesting. Yeah. Until now, you yeah. know, now we get it. It's tricky because I do, you know, I suppose, again, from having the luxury of time to go through the all of the previous interviews, both in press and, uh, you know, that have been published, that you know, the ones that were on television, I definitely can see that she was starting to tell people well before 1992, the Ireland that she'd come from. She was talking about abuse. You know, she was trying to tell people where she'd come from and why it was important to her. But I don't think people were able to connect the dots when it happened, you know, on the, October the 3rd in 1992, in the right. way that it happened. Um, and I just think that was really that it was, it, she was way ahead of, of, of time. It just wasn't a public story. People didn't know right. what she meant, but she certainly had been telling people her own experience in interviews, lots of interviews um, leading up to it.
you know, you point out something. I think Americans, uh, despite their love of Ireland, I'm talking to you from Chicago. They dye the Chicago River green here mm-hmm. every St. Patrick's Day. You know, we think we know Ireland. We don't. Mm-hmm. And Sinead was trying to teach us about this other Ireland and where she came from. Absolutely. Um, and it was so important to us to actually really root her story in Ireland so that, you know, I suppose when you asked the question before about why 1987 to 1993, the key reason for us focusing like that, well, there's two reasons. One, I would take my hat off to anybody that can create a successful 90 minutes biopic of Sinead O'Connor's life, because my goodness, yeah. it's in a fantastically dense, rich, complex life. And to be able to give it any proper depth I'd be, I, I mean, I, I think there's probably like, maybe it would need like a four-part uh, series or something to be able to do it yeah, well. Yeah, you need the four or five hours. You yeah. do, you honestly yeah. do. But really for us, I suppose what we wanted to do was almost lay the foundation to really look at the cause and effect of what went on there. Why did she rip up the picture of the Pope in 1992? Right. Because we felt if you could understand the context and why that happened, everything post-1992, 93 makes a lot more sense. I think it's it was yeah. trying to clear that uh, confusion and, uh, and to really... And, and to be able to do that, then we, of course, have to go back to this old Ireland that has spawned her. And, you know, we had to dive deeply into this transgenerational trauma this country that is still reeling from what's gone on and how deeply um, it's been affected so really that was a key reason so I suppose the film itself is a story of Sinead and it's a story of Ireland and it's this kind of interweaving of what they have both gone through for everything then to make sense at the end and that was always our intention really with it. No, no, it really is. Is there, uh, in percolating in the back of your head, is there desire to tell the story of Sinead's life since? Yeah, probably um, in, in the future. But I also feel like what I was here to do was to tell this version of the story and get it out in the right yeah. way and yeah. um, and to be able to communicate um, and clear up, as I said, a lot of these Issues around um, just this lack of understanding about who she is, what she went through and why she did what she did. And I feel, you know, I, I hope that what Nothing Compares has done has actually really cleared a lot of that up uh, for, for yeah, years. Yeah. You know, Sinead's on a journey and she's got an amazing, you know, she has this amazing life and incredible uh career and you know the story is certainly not over yet so i'll be very interested to see what you know the the where it goes next thank you for hearing me thank you for hearing me so the heartbreaker at the end of the film Mm -hmm. the chiron prince's estate would not allow us to use nothing compares Wow. You know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, Prince fought the system the same way Sinead fought the system. There was no recognition of that, uh, you know, ally relationship. Okay, it was okay, it's a tricky one. Um, really, uh, yes, we um, reached out and we were uh, declined the use of the song. 
at the end of the day, it's their prerogative. Um, they gave uh, a, a good statement about why uh, recently, <laughs> which viewers or listeners, sorry, can certainly Google and find. Um, it's tricky for me to get into because I don't want to uh, say the wrong thing. I'm being very careful for what I say about it. But um, we were, of course, very disappointed, but it's their prerogative. And I suppose what it did mean for the film is that I think, goodness, 98% of all the music you hear in the film is music that Sinead has written herself. And I think right, in many ways right. that's more appropriate for, for the outcome of the film um, in the end. No, it's true. And and the footage of the making of the famous video is almost uh, as powerful as hearing the song. But, and it's been fascinating because so many people, I find it astounding because it was obviously something I was pretty uh, concerned about um, but it's so many people have said that well people have said they haven't noticed which which I find unbelievable because and, and a lot mm. of other people have said just seeing the footage and we were very fortunate to be um, given access to the rushes so we had all the rushes for this iconic video but people say just seeing it they can hear the song just by seeing it. The song plays in their heads. And yeah. I find that yeah. very powerful to hear as well. We were um, yeah. very relieved that, that that was the case. Thank you for, for an important and brilliant film. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Oh, lovely to talk to you. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. <laughs> coming up next, we break down some of our favorite, lesser-known Sinead O'Connor songs. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're talking about the music and activism of singer and songwriter Sinead O'Connor. Now we want to dive into some of her lesser-known work that we love. Jim, why don't you start us off? Yeah, I said it earlier, Greg, never a bad album in those 10 or 11, however you count the discography. And even though the spotlight quickly moved on after the Pope picture incident, man, the music since. We talked about the context of that Pope tearing incident. Uh, Bob Marley contextualizing a speech by Marcus Garvey. And I want to play a track uh, from Throw Down Your Arms in 2005, an incredible album of uh, classic versions of uh, beloved roots reggae songs uh, produced by Sly and Robbie. You know, the reggae thing was there from the beginning with her. It always was. I will point out black music in general when she had a hit single with the Emperor's New Clothes from I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, uh, she tapped uh, Hank Shockley, Public Enemies producer, to remix it. You know, and, it, and it, it's fantastic. It's bringing hip-hop together with alternative rock or Sinead or whatever you want to call her genre. Marcus Garvey, uh, a track from Throw Down Your Arms. Yeah, again, critics uh, not understanding what this artist is doing or who she is. Oh, you know, Sinead tries to make a reggae album. Reggae was part of her lifeblood. She mm -hmm. interacted uh, with people of African descent and Rastafarians all the time in Ireland, in the UK. Right. She loved this music. Sly and Robbie didn't think she was a pretender. It's a beautiful, beautiful album uh, of music that she understands. And again, Marcus Garvey... 
inspired Bob Marley's war, which in, which she covered during that controversial incident. And here she is uh, delivering a song in tribute to Marcus Garvey. Know the right Marcus Garvey by Sinead, uh, what some people say, her reggae album, but reggae was always part of it, not just on Throw Down yeah, Your Arms. There, there were no genre exercises with Sinead. She, she lived, lived it, you know. It was part of her life from uh, uh, the very earliest uh, years. Uh, the song I want to play is actually the first song on her first album, uh, Jackie. It's, it wasn't a hit, but I think it's an indication of where Sinead was going. Already she sounds much more mature, much more seasoned than the teenager who sang this song. It was inspired by a play she saw on TV about an old lady in Scotland who waits at her window every day for 40 years for her husband to come home. Uh, long gone on a fishing trip, you know, obviously... To everybody around her, uh, they realize that he's dead. He's never coming home. But still, she waits by that curtain window every day, looking out to sea, hoping he will come back. And in the song, you know, Sinead takes that idea and talks about uh, a narrator who is a ghost walking the beach, you know, waiting uh, for the return of someone dead. Um, So the narrator is a ghost, the return of someone dead. She's talking about the afterlife. She's talking about the vision of hope in a hopeless situation. Mm. Uh, really powerful stuff, hauntingly sung by Sinead. The song is Jackie from her first album, The Lion and the Cobra, from 1987 on Sound Opinions. Jackie left on a cold, dark night Telling me he'd be home Sail the seas for a hundred years Leaving me That is Jackie from Sinead O'Connor, first album, first song. What a start to a great career. Oh, absolutely, Greg. And again, there are no genre exercises or detours. She is using her albums throughout her career to highlight different elements of who she is. Um, That was the case with Sean Nas Nua in 2002, a collection of folk standards from the British Isles and from Canada. I'm going to play the song Peggy Gordon, which is a very well-known Canadian folk song. I'd never heard it before Sinead gave it to me, and I uh, since have listened to other versions, and as always, she makes a song 110% her own. Sinead's sexuality has always been a question. Uh, She's been married four times, has had four children, but she says she identifies with lesbians, right? And that she would be a lesbian, except that she's had these relationships mostly with men. Okay. Peggy Gordon, uh, she interprets as a song about a lesbian who is lamenting the loss of her partner, lamenting both 
uh, society's prejudices and a very personal loss of a relationship. And, uh, you know, it's one of those songs, you know, I swear I've cried more listening to Sinead uh, and all of her music over the years than any other artist, really. Uh, it is so emotionally powerful. Uh, Sean Nasnua, some people say a ballad album, folk album. It's a Sinead album, like mm, everything else right. she gave us. Wow. Yeah, you're talking about the uh, emotional impact of Sinead. Uh, I remember very well the 1997-1998 tour that she gave. She was playing theaters at this point. Mm -hmm. Just jaw-dropping. Incredible show. Uh, The voice, uh, everything. Uh, The the backing arrangements were so stripped down. It was basically about Sinead, that voice, and those songs. You know, and if she, she consciously sacrificed stadium audiences to theater audiences but i gotta say every time i've seen her perform i've never seen an audience more rapt and quiet and devoted she got the audience she wanted yeah she you know you know i said earlier that she talks about like her concerts are like going to mass you know for Mm -hmm. her this was her church this is a rebel song is a is a track i want to play this is her sweeping into the next phase of her career after they that she'd blown up the whole pop I'm not mm-hmm. a pop star thing. She introduced it that night as this is a love song. <laughs> it's, <laughs> the name of it is this is a rebel song. She said, this is a love song. This is a love song for Ireland. This is about a, I'm rebelling against the rebellion. I'm rebelling against the sectarianism that I'm seeing in my country. You know, the troubles. Um, she was very outspoken about the violence that it was associated with, with what Ireland wanted to be. And, and the factions within Ireland that were sort of making that difficult for, for decades. Um, and it was just a very powerful moment. You know, she's a, she's a political artist when she wants to be. Um, a lot of her songs are political, but she doesn't slam you in the face with it. The beauty of the songs and the empathy in her songs really is what comes to the forefront. This is a Rebel song from Sinead O'Connor's 1997 Gospel Oak EP on Sound Opinions. How come you've never said you love me in all the time? This is a rebel song by uh, one of the greatest rebels in the history of popular music, <laughs> Greg. Sinead O'Connor, we could talk about her forever, but that wraps up our discussion for this episode. Now we want to hear from you. Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Give us your thoughts. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to have a uh, discussion about uh, Nico, originally a member of the the Velvet Underground, great solo career. Uh, Chris Connolly is going to be our guest talking about Nico. He did an incredible album 
devoted to her music and life. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Nico, another rebel, just like Sinead O'Connor. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Lauren Holt, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 